welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on Christmas Day, Lord's Day service. like to direct your attention this morning are found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We offer our hearts to you promptly and sincerely through the power of your Spirit and in the name of the Son. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 8 verse 44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies, which means that in Satan's ideal kingdom, the ultimate delusion is announced morning, noon, and night. And in the last few years, it feels like Satan's ideal has been lived out. But I've got news for you this Christmas morning. God is up to something. The tumult of the present moment, the culture of, uh, the chaos of culture that we live in, the difficulties that you experience in your life and in your family, all of it is setting up for a great reversal which just happens to be God's specialty. See, when God grows his kingdom, things aren't always what they seem. God can reverse trends. This is how God often works. Consider the town of Bethlehem. You see, towns and cities earn a reputation. When you think of Chicago, you think of gun violence. When you think of Fort Worth, you think of cowboys. When you think of San Francisco, you think of 
other things. And Bethlehem also had a reputation. When Christ is born in Bethlehem, its reputation is a combination of Chicago and San Francisco. The first biblical reference to Bethlehem is in Genesis chapter 35. This is the story of Rachel dying during childbirth, and it says that she is buried in Bethlehem. And then in Genesis chapter 48, we're reminded of Jacob's sorrow over Rachel's death, and we're reminded again that she is buried in Bethlehem. Another biblical reference to Bethlehem is in Judges chapter 19. In Judges chapter 17 through 19, it's explaining that Israel was turning to idols because of the Levites and the priests, how they're unfaithful. And to illustrate the problem, Judges 19 contains this macabre story about a certain Levite who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. And as they are traveling, the concubine is defiled and murdered. The Levite responds by dividing her, and I read now from Judges 19.29, limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Merry Christmas. <laughs> then another biblical reference to Bethlehem is Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Bethlehem there is referenced as the place of famine, a famine that's so severe that some people are dying and others are fleeing. Needless to say, Bethlehem has a certain reputation. Bethlehem, at the time of Christ's birth, Bethlehem is not a place of fond memories for Israel. It has a earned reputation over a period of thousands of years. And so as God's people await their Messiah, the last place they would expect to find him is in the town of Bethlehem a town of sad memories, murder, violence, and famine. The biblical references to Bethlehem recount grief and death, murder and immorality, famine and starvation. But the God of reversals inspires the prophet Micah to write these words in Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, and he shall be their peace. You see, God's plan means reversing the reputation of Bethlehem from the least of Israel's cities to the birthplace of the Messiah. At the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem is notorious. It's associated with tragedy and wickedness. But now where we sit in the year 2022, when we think of Bethlehem, we think of the birth of Jesus Christ the Messiah. When we think of Bethlehem, we associate it with the happiest day of the year, Christmas. We associate it with Christmas gifts. We associate Bethlehem with good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And what this teaches us is that our God is a God of reversals. You see, God has a go-to move. He's got several of them, and it's wise that we study them. And one of God's go-to moves is to orchestrate a great reversal. And when God orchestrates a great reversal, it always amounts to a great subversion of sin, death, and the devil. This is the doctrine of great reversal. 
And this is the dynamic where God subverts worldly expectations of wisdom and power by choosing the weak, the foolish, or the powerless to accomplish his purposes. And it's not just Bethlehem where we see the doctrine of great reversals. We see it all throughout the Bible. For example, God chose an octogenarian idol worshiper, Abram, and his barren wife, Sarah, to be the father of a multitude of nations. And then, it's not Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, who is in the line of promise, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Then, Jacob, the younger son of Isaac, gets the inheritance instead of the firstborn, Esau. Then, God uses Moses, the abandoned orphan with a speech impediment, to rescue his people from Pharaoh. Then God chooses David, not the rugged Saul who looks the part of a king, but God chooses David, the youngest of his brothers and initially overlooked even by the prophet Samuel, to be the great king of God's people who will lead them to victory and in whose line the Messiah is born. God grafts Ruth, the destitute Moabite foreigner, into the family line of God's Messiah. And then there's Mary. In Luke chapter 1, she is newly and unexplainably pregnant, just a vulnerable girl. But God explains that he has a plan and that he's going to reverse, uh, reverse not just her fortunes, but the fortunes of all of Israel. And in response, Mary believes what seems to be unbelievable. And she sings, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And then Jesus, the God-made flesh, is born in Bethlehem, the town of reputation. Jesus' ministry emphasizes widows, sinners, and tax collectors, people that also are stained with a certain reputation. His ministry emphasizes the blind and the lame, women and children, even the despised Samaritans who also have a reputation. And then the carpenter from Nazareth, is killed. He is dead. And then he isn't because God raises him from the dead. And that is the great reversal in all of Scripture. And dead to life has been the pattern for the church ever since. And speaking of the church, make no mistake, this play of great reversal that God runs over and over and over again also works itself out in the life of the church. We see this, for example, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. The two witnesses, also known as the two lampstands and the two olive trees, appear to be defeated by the beast that rises from the bottomless pit in Revelation 11, verse 7. But when all seems lost, they come back to life. And what was the cause of the two witnesses of the church coming back to life? Well, we read this in Revelation 11, 11. A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. You see, Revelation 11 teaches us that the doctrine of great reversals applies to the life of the church as well, and we shouldn't be surprised when the church encounters hostility. And more importantly, we learn the church shouldn't give up when it seems like the beast has won. God has a plan for victory, 
And so if the church looks like a corpse, it will soon stir. And what will be the cause? Well, as we read in Revelation 11:11, the breath of life from God will bring the witnesses to their feet. And Christmas reminds us that God is a God of great reversals. There is a biblical pattern of God's words and actions running athwart the conventional wisdom of the day. And as we celebrate Christmas together, the hour of opportunity is before us, not behind us. Yes, our times seem bizarre. There's cultural chaos, there's difficulty in life, in your family, perhaps. But God is up to something during these bizarre times. Now, don't misunderstand. The foolishness of the wicked won't disappear overnight. There is a great deal of credulity in the world today. Absurd deceptions, like a man can give birth to a baby, have a history of persisting longer than plain reason merits. But what you need to hear and understand is that it's not going to disappear while the church carries on in a state of doom and gloom. In fact, this point is made very clear all throughout Mark's gospel. You see, faith in the promises of God is our part to play. And then God will play His part of fulfilling those promises. This is one of those other patterns that we see in Scripture, one of, other, one of the other go-to moves of God. Mark's gospel establishes this pattern that those who have faith are healed. Those who have faith are healed. We see this all throughout Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 5, verse 34. We see this with the bleeding woman. We see this with Jairus in Mark chapter 5, verse 36. We see this with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 and the sick boy's father in Mark chapter 9. It's those who have faith that are healed. This is made clear for us also in Mark chapter 6 when in Nazareth, the locals reject Jesus. They don't have faith. And so Jesus does no mighty work there. Jesus responds to faith. And it's not that Jesus' power is limited by a lack of faith. It's that Jesus will not force His miracles on a hostile, skeptical audience. God chooses to give grace in response to faith. Paul says this explicitly in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. So what does this mean for us going forward? Well, an illustration. During World War II, after the massive German counteroffensive known as the Battle of the Bulge, the Allied forces are on the run. General Eisenhower meets with the brass in a cold, damp room. Eisenhower's lieutenants enter the room, glum, depressed, and embarrassed given the magnitude of the intelligence failure and the faulty disposition of their troops. They keep their faces bent over their coffee cups. General Eisenhower walks in. He looks disapprovingly at the downcast generals, and he boldly declares, the present situation is to be regarded as one of opportunity for us and not of disaster. There will be only cheerful faces at this conference table. And this is exactly how Christians should view the present situation. It looks like the enemy has punched holes in our defenses. Evil is everywhere, and wickedness laughs. 
There have been major intelligence failures among the evangelical thought leaders and coalitions. But according to the history of how the God of reversals operates, we should see this as an opportunity. We cannot keep our faces bent over our coffee in glum despair. Instead, we can host dinners with cheerfulness. We can go to Theology on Tap, Beer and Hymns, Women's Book Groups, with optimism in our conversation. Not fake optimism, but faith. We can go to Sunday worship even on Christmas. We can go to Sunday worship with loud and joyful singing. Why? Because the God who makes all things new is also the God who wins in the end. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.